Welcome to McCullough Christian Center's broadcast today. If you would like more information about our church, please visit our website at www.purposemcc.com. Since I've got the microphone, you guys want to hear some cool stories from there while I was there? I don't know what I would do if you said no. I just wanted to make you feel like you had a choice in it. Okay. You know, during the crusade, we saw so many miracles. We took testaments for close to two hours, and we got through maybe 15 or 20% of them. But one of the miracles, how many of you know God still does miracles today, okay? Let me just kill a religious devil right now. There is an entire teaching that teaches that miracles ended in the days of the apostles. Friend, that is not the Bible I read. Jesus said, go into all the world, preach the gospel, lay hands on the sick, cast out devils, freely you have received, freely give. You know, two nights before the crusade, we held a healing service. It wasn't very large. We had maybe like a thousand people who came to the healing service. It wasn't very widely promoted. And really, excuse me, really it was for a local church there. And we said, listen, if anyone's sick, bring them and we'll pray for the sick. So I got off the plane after preaching, sorry, after flying for 31 hours, having a 10-hour time difference, got off the plane and they threw me straight into a service. So I didn't know what day it was. I didn't know if my suit matched. I had like Nike shoes on with a, like it was, it was a mess. Like my hair was back here somewhere. I didn't know what country I was in. Honestly, it, it was the exact scenario not to have miracles. But how many know that you don't play as big a part as you think you do in miracles? Okay, if you think it's about you, i got news for you. It has nothing to do with you. God can use a donkey. So you are more than qualified, okay? So I was, I was on the pulpit, just the world spinning around me thinking, okay, I can remember a scripture. I can remember one scripture. I'm like, man, that God so loved something that he did something and I made my way through this sermon the best I could, okay? But while I was preaching, I honestly, I preached the ABCs of the gospel. I preached John 3.16. And do you know that that's enough? When you're in a country filled with darkness, one scripture of light is enough to send every devil running for the hills. I was preaching the gospel and I saw a bit of a commotion at the back. But I didn't really acknowledge it. I thought maybe a devil's manifesting. And how many know I don't really give too much attention to devils while preaching the gospel, okay? I don't have time to worry about them. They'll get cast out by the end of preaching the blood. So I finished preaching the gospel. And I think like maybe like 90, 100 people gave their lives to Jesus, which is beautiful before the Lord. But then we began praying for the sick. And so I began praying and I saw people getting healed. It was wonderful. And so we started taking testimonies. People came up and said, hey, I've been crippled for years. God healed me. You know, it was amazing. And then a woman comes up carrying a baby in her arms. I'm like, oh, this is going to be precious. Her baby got healed. What happened next, I was not ready for. The following testimony came out of the woman's mouth. She said, earlier today, I was walking with my girl down the street in my hand. She was walking beside me. Suddenly, my daughter collapsed on the ground and stopped breathing. And she died. She said, people gathered around my daughter to try and resuscitate. Okay, resuscitate her. They tried to work on her. They had a medical expert there who said, we're sorry. 
your daughter's dead. Take her to be buried. She said, but I heard there was a healing service. <laughs> and I thought maybe, just maybe, God can give me a miracle. She said, so hours went by and I made my way to the service, but sir, when I got here, you were already preaching. So I went to the very back of the service with my dead daughter in my arms. I laid her on the floor and I just sat there listening. Now this is my favorite part, and I'll tell you why. Because no one gets to take credit for what happened next except Jesus. She said this, while you were preaching, now watch this, not while someone was laying hands, not while the man of God prayed, while you were preaching the gospel, my daughter began to move. She opened her eyes, she sat up, and God raised my daughter from the dead. Friend, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and, and I am the life. If he was the resurrection 2,000 years ago, then friend, he is still the resurrection and he is still the life. Give God some praise. God raised that young girl from the dead. And it was marvelous in our eyes. You know, that was only one of the crusades we've done this year. We've done three this year. In fact, three weeks ago, I returned from Kenya, Africa. And the thing about Kenya is the nation is still very much in lockdown. You can't hold a big crusade like we held there. So what I decided to do was I took a team with me, people from different places around America. And we were told you can't hold one big service, but you can hold many small services. So what we did was we had an entire team that reached out to orphanages, prisons, schools, universities, and say, can we bring guests to come and preach to your students, to your inmates, to the orphans, wherever they are. And over the space of 12 days, my team and I held literally hundreds upon hundreds of services. Some days we preached 70, 80 services a day. Sometimes I would preach seven, six, seven services a day just on my own. And my team were out there preaching the gospel. And over those 12 days, we saw 115,108 decisions for Jesus Christ. Can we give God some praise? You know, this year alone, we've seen just under 194,000 decisions for Jesus Christ. And I tell you all of that for this particular reason. Friend, the harvest is ripe, but the laborers are few. The laborers are few. So I have come tonight to look for laborers. Now, some of you already switched off the moment I said that because you said, Jordan, I'm not an evangelist. Well, I don't find anywhere in the Great Commission that Jesus spoke to evangelists. If he did, please point it out to me and I will take my seat and hand the microphone back. 
But when Jesus gave the Great Commission, he never specified a demographic. Mean there's only one outcome. He was talking to you. I want to give you a newsflash. God certainly did not use anybody special to preach to that gospel crusade. Let's go to the Bible. I'm going to shock you by turning to Mark 16, verse 14. You know, it was in a service just like this where the Lord gave me a mandate for my life and I was never the same again. I know you guys hear that as a cliche by every guest, speaker, blah, blah, blah. Okay. But if you would actually believe it, your life can be forever changed tonight. God can alter the trajectory of your life through one encounter. Maybe you think tonight, Jordan, I'm just not someone God can use. Oh, friend, you're exactly the person he wants to use. The Bible says, later he appeared to the 11 as they sat at the table and he rebuked their what? You were doing so well with the amen thing, and now we got to a different word, and you got all scared. Okay, we, let's do this together, and let's encourage each other, all right? Tell the person next to you, we're going to do this together. I'm with you, okay? Come on, friend, you can do this. All right, here we go. I have high expectations of McCullough Christian Center. Every time I come, don't let me down. And he rebuked their... I find it fascinating he never rebuked their fear. Isn't that interesting? Let me give you some context of this scripture. They were not gathering. They were hiding. You're a, this, remember, when I preach to you, it's a dialogue. It's not a monologue. I need you to talk to me so I can talk to you. Amen? Okay. They were not having a prayer meeting here. They were hiding. Because they were fearful that what just happened to Jesus would happen to, to them. But what is fascinating to me is this. Jesus never came in and rebuked them because of their fear. He rebuked them because of their... Why? Because Jesus can use you in spite of your fear. He cannot use you in spite of unbelief. Understand, Jesus never rebuked Peter because he was scared on the water. He corrected him when he saw that his faith began to fail because he took his eyes off Jesus and saw the waves and the wind and he had unbelief. This is why Jesus spoke to the disciples, I believe in Mark eleven twenty two, and said, if anyone simply believes and has faith, you can speak to this mountain and simply remove it and cast into the sea. He rebuked them because of their unbelief. Friend, we could preach all night on that one scripture right there. He never rebuked them because of their lack of qualifications. Their unbelief. I read a great quote by Spurgeon the other day. 
and I'm going to butcher this, but give me grace when I say this. I believe Spurgeon said, many great dreams and desires are strangled in their infancy by unbelief. That sounded right. Okay. Many great dreams and desires are strangled in their infancy because of unbelief. Do you know how you miss out on the call of God for your life? It starts by doing something similar to what Peter did. By failing to look at Jesus. And firstly, the Bible says he looked at himself and where he was stood. Many people don't get off the starting line because they look at themselves and what they have to offer. Take that for what it's worth. And hardness of heart because they did not believe those who had seen him after he had risen. And he said to them, say the next word. All right, let's, let, let's, let's, let's do this together as a combined unit. And he said to them, go. Let's do that one more time. And he said to them, go. Into all the world. Let me stop you there. He never said go to the places that make you feel comfortable. If that was the case, I would have never stuck my backside in Pakistan. Nothing about being there made me feel good. I couldn't leave the hotel without armed guards with machine guns following me. In fact, when I stood up to preach the gospel, is this being live streamed? No, okay, pr okay. Well, what? well, praise God. All right. Do you know you see that video and you're like, oh, yeah, praise God, wonderful. Okay, let me tell you what the reality was. I was stood on the platform and our crusade director there said, brother, in five minutes, you're up to preach. I said, no problem. I'm ready to go. A minute went by. Another minute went by. About three minutes. It gets to two minutes, okay? I looked to my left and about 10 to 15 men dressed head to foot in black attire carrying machine guns come and stand right in front of the stage staring at me with the guns. So I turned to my crusade director and I said, hey, listen, real quick. Are they with us? Or should I be concerned? And here's what he answered me. No joke. Before the Lord, this is what he said. He said, brother, I have no idea, but here's the microphone. And handed me the mic. So listen, this is no joke. I got up to the pulpit having no idea if they would support me or shoot me. I know it's funny now, but in that moment, thoughts go through your mind like, wow, I should probably text my wife. Like, I'm not being funny. I'm like, I have a one-year-old son at home. But you've got two choices. You either go into all the world... But that doesn't end there. There's an addition. If you're going to go, there's something you're required to do. Go into all the world and preach. Watch this. This gospel. 
In Matthew 10, Jesus was specific. He said, preach this gospel. Well, why would he say that? Because there's a lot of gospels that are preached today, friend. Let me help you out. The prosperity gospel. This is going to upset you right now, but it's okay because pastor will clean up the mess after this. Okay. Do you know that as charismatic Christians and Pentecostals, we don't have copyrights for the gospel? Do you know what that means? The Baptist can also preach the correct gospel. The Lutheran can also preach the correct. We don't own the rights to Jesus. Are you aware of that? So when he said go and preach the gospel, that means whether the church down the road with a different denomination is preaching it, we go support that. You know what's really funny? So many churches I go to say, brother, we're contending for revival. We're contending for unity in our city. Do you know what would be a real good test of your unity? If you pray for revival and the church down the street gets it, are you going to go and support it? Because what most people want is this. We want revival, but we want to own it. <laughs> Preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. Yeah, that's still in the gospel. Hell is still real. You don't get to preach heaven without preaching hell, friend. Well, I love them. No, no, love tells them about consequences too. No good parent says, I love my child, so I'm going to let them touch the hot stove. That's not love, friend. And these signs will follow those who are ordained. That's not what my Bible says. These fines will follow those who are in the Pentecostal denomination. These signs will follow those who had a man of God lay hands on them. What is the quali qualification for these signs following you? Only believe. In my name, not the name of your ministry. Do you know the devil is not scared of the name all for Jesus? Well, actually he might because he's got the name Jesus in there. Okay, well, hold on. The name of the ministry is all for Jesus. But the point is this. The devil does not answer to the name of our ministry. You remember the story of when the sons of Sceva tried to cast out the devils in all the other names, and they got jumped on, stripped naked, and sent running? That's just evidence that goes to prove there's only one name you can use if you want to see signs and wonders, friend. In my name... They will cast out devils. They will speak with new tongues. They will take up serpents, and if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. I was going to say something that might have got me in trouble, but we're still in sensitive times. Okay, keep on moving, Jordan. If you drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt you. They will lay hands on the sick, and they shall recover. And I want you to understand tonight that whoever you are in this room, there is a mandate over your life. See friend, the moment you came to Jesus, 
there was an assignment given to you. Say amen. This assignment was so important to Jesus. It was the crescendo of his ministry. You have to understand Jesus has lived his whole life, 33 years, no sin in his life, lived purely before God, healed the sick, cast out devils, loved the unlovely, forgave the sinner, and he has died and risen again, and Jesus is in the final moments of the 40 days he has left on earth. Are you tracking with me? Okay, let me set the scene for you right now. Jesus is with his disciples knowing he has a matter of days left between the great commission and the ascension. Amen? So Jesus knows this. My disciples are about to go through some of the harshest years of persecution the Christian world will ever deal with. So you've got to understand that Jesus, whatever he says to them, has got to so anchor their soul that when they are faced with lions, they will not break. So Jesus is found in a position where the words he's about to give them have to be life-changing. I find it fascinating that Jesus never told them how to build a megachurch. You have to understand, 12 disciples, Jesus is like, okay, yeah, go ahead. Go build my church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. They've already heard that. So Jesus, give us a game plan because you know these next few years are going to be rough. I find it fascinating. Jesus never gave them the secret to walking on water. He never gave them the secret to how he multiplied the fish and the loaves. But what he said to them was this. Now listen to me. You've heard this preach before, but I want to show you a different side of what he said to them. You thought what he said to them was glorious, amen? Let me tell you what really happened, okay? Jesus said to them this. I want you to go and preach the same message that just got me killed. That makes you look at it a little different, right? We're like, yeah, 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 preach the gospel. Lay hands on it, amen, amen. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. That's the exact thing that just got Jesus nailed to a cross. And Jesus, this is your game plan for building your church. Jesus, we don't mean to tell you what to do, but this might not last very long. You're the Son of God. And you just preach this message, and we just watch you get murdered, Jesus. And your plan for taking this gospel to the end of the earth is to do the same thing you just did. So why, Jesus, would this be your idea of how to build a church? And friend, I think the answer is simple yet profound. There was no other message that could have got the job done except the message that Jesus preached. You say, well, how is that applicable to me today? Friend, the gospel we have is the most life-changing but the most offensive message this world has ever heard. You have to understand, in the face of Pharisees, this message was blasphemy. 
Because you have got men who their whole life have heard this. Work for it. Strive for it. And if you are just good enough, then maybe you'll make it. Along comes Jesus saying, you're not good enough, but I am. And you wonder why they nailed him to a cross. They had kept the law their entire life. Look at Paul. He said, I knew the law better than all you jokers. I kept it since I was a child. I was faultless in the law. But when I encountered the grace of God, I found something about the gospel that all of my works, all of my efforts could never attain. Because although I was the apostle Paul, when I looked at the brilliance of Jesus, what I had done paled in comparison to the perfect work of the cross. Disciples were not just given a message. They had watched Jesus live out that message for three years of his life. So this was not just saying preach the gospel. This was Jesus saying, you watched me do it and you saw what happened. This wasn't Jesus asking to do something he had not already proved to them. But I've got news for you. John... The beloved, he was amazing. But he's gone. Peter, a little crazy, but amazing. He's gone. The disciples, they preached. The Bible says they turned the world upside down. But they're gone. I have more news for you. John Wesley, he's gone. Whitfield, gone. Wigglesworth, gone. Spurgeon, gone. Coleman, gone. Maria Woodworth Edda, gone. Reinhard Bonnke, gone. Billy Graham, gone. Friend, they're amazing, but the fact is, they are not here anymore. So what happens? The baton. They were amazing, but they have run their race. That's why Paul said, I have run the race. I have kept the faith. There is therefore laid up for me the crown of righteousness that the Lord, the righteous judge, watch this, will give to me on that day, but not just to me, but to those who have loved his appearing. I want to kill a religious devil right now real quick. For those of you who believe you are not in the office of evangelist, let me just bring you up to speed a little bit here. For years, the church has left soul winning to the evangelists. You guys want a math class real quick? Okay. What percentage does the office of the evangelist make up out of the fivefold ministry? That was the part where you said 20%, Jordan. Okay. Okay. I'm going to give you a second chance. What percentage does the evangelist make up out of the five-fold ministry? 
Well done, guys. Well done. Okay. Work with me here. Okay. The role of the evangelist is only 20% out of the five-fold ministry. So think about this. Out of the, those who call themselves evangelists, how many of those are actively evangelizing? Let me help you with that. There was a study done by a university that factually could prove to you that one out of 85 Christians in their lifetime shared the gospel. Coincidentally, there are approximately about 80 to 100 people in this room tonight. Statistically, one out of all of us in our lifetime will share the gospel. Friend, that's a problem. For those of you who still aren't jumping on this side of the ship, and you're like, no, brother, I'm a prophet. The Lord knows I'm a prophet. The whole church knows I'm a prophet. In fact, people call me Prophet Joe. Okay, Prophet Joe, real quick. How do think it's going to go with the Lord when you stand in front of me one day and say, Lord, I let people go to hell because after all, I wasn't an evangelist. Good luck with that, Prophet Joe. So you're telling me that your unsaved family members, you're allowing them to go to hell because you are not an evangelist. Friend, I want to make something very clear. Some people are gifted in the office of an evangelist. But you better believe we are all called to evangelize. That's why 2 Timothy chapter 4 says this. Endure afflictions. Go through hardships. Do the work of an evangelist. If you still don't believe me, let me at least give you a moral example. Can you imagine the anger the world would have if we discovered some guy in the back end of Idaho had found the cure to cancer, but for 50 years he had kept it to himself? What would you say about that man? How insensitive. What an evil man. Willingly allow people to die. Hold on, brother. You have been given the antidote to sin in this world, and yet you have kept it behind locked lips. Friend, there is a sickness in this world called sin. And we have been given the message of the gospel. But listen to me. A great evangelist by the name of Reinhard Bonnke once said this. An unpreached gospel is no gospel at all. Let me give you an example. Can you imagine? If there was a young man who was born in a family. A very wealthy family. And one day this young man finds out that his uncle has passed away. He knew that his uncle was a multi-multi-millionaire. And in the will, the uncle left his entire estate to this young man. How many think that is wonderful news? That wasn't rhetorical. That, that really was... I, uh, if that was you, how many of you think that was wonderful news? 
Yeah, you better tithe to your church if that is you, okay. You better give that 10% of that $4 million. How many think that's wonderful news? But how good news is it actually unless he finds out about it? See, watch this. The power is not in the written will. It is when the young man hears about the, put the pieces together. Okay. The gospel has the power to break every chain of sin, to heal the sick, to cleanse the lepers. But listen to me. It is no good unless they hear. The gospel has been in the Bible for thousands of years, yet people are still going to hell. Why? How will they believe unless they hear? And how are they going to hear? Sister, I don't know your next door neighbor, but you do. Do with that what you will. I know they didn't vote for the little same party that you voted for. Get over it, friend. This is not about your political affiliation. This is about heaven or hell. Let me go ahead and just, oh, no, I could get in so much trouble. I'm not even American, so I can say what I want. Okay, wonderful. Here we go. Listen, friend, your little Republican friend was never going to fix this country. There goes tomorrow's offerings. I don't care. I don't. You think that one man was going to fix every problem? It's not a problem thing, friend. It's a heart thing. It is sin in the heart of man that no legislation, no political party, no president is going to fix, friend. The Bible says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. But friend, when Jesus saves you, he doesn't fix your heart. He replaces your stony heart, gives you a heart of flesh. A president cannot do that. So stop crying about it and look up. Lift up your head. Your redemption is not coming from the White House. He is coming on the clouds of heaven. And every eye will see him. Dear God, get off your little pedestal about you wanted him to. It doesn't matter. You are dealing with temporary leaders who God laughs at. What's going to happen to our nation? You don't think that the one who hung stars in space. You know, the last two years have exposed a lot of things. More than anything, the faith of the saints of God. You know, I spend most of my weekends in a year in different churches around America, and 
friend, I'm honored to do it. I, I, I mean that with all my heart. It's the greatest honor in the world. But the fear coming out of some people is so deep because they have failed to look up. See, Jesus spoke in the end times, saying that all these things would happen. Wars, rumors of wars, famines, pestilence. Pestilence. You know what that means? Diseases. Nowhere did I read Jesus saying panic and make a Facebook post. I can't find it. Maybe your translation is different to mine. I don't find it. And this is not a political speech right now. What I'm telling you is what Jesus said. He said, when these things happen, look up. Lip. I'm getting way off my summer, but listen. Now, why would he tell me to look up? Why? Why did he not say in your heart, fixate on that? No, 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 he didn't say that. He said, look up. I think I know why he said that. Because it's very hard to be fearful about what's going on here when I'm looking here. People ask me all the time, have you seen what's happening in the news? No, I have no idea. I couldn't tell you who most of the people in the government cabinet are right now. I couldn't tell you if they walked up and greeted me and shook my hand. I couldn't. Because I'm not living for this temporary world. Now listen, listen, listen. I'm not saying be ignorant. That's not what I'm saying. Do I believe we're meant to pray for those in power? Yes. Whether you voted for them or not, yes. Some need your prayers more than others, okay? But my point is this. I'm not going to build my life on something that's made of sand. When there is a kingdom being established and I have been called with my mouth and with my hands to build the kingdom of God that will never pass away, that will never fade away. Friends, presidents will come and go. Governments will come and go. But Jesus said the government is on his shoulder. You might be thinking tonight, Jordan, listen, that sounds wonderful. That sounds great. I guess, you know, now you've proved I am called to preach the gospel, but I'm just not sure I'm qualified to do that. Friend, if you open the scriptures, you'll find that Jesus has a wonderful habit that he loves. He likes to take those who the world has said, you're going to be nothing. Some of that stood up on the day of Pentecost. Preaching the gospel and 3,000 people come to faith. He said he takes the foolish things of the world and uses them to confound the wise. He takes the weak things of the world and uses them to shame the strong. That means tonight, friend, whoever you are in this room, God can use you. Let me speak prophetically right now. There are some of you and hear me respectfully, I'm talking to some of those who are older than the age of 40. Listen to me tonight. There are some of you that as children in church, prophetic words were spoken over your life of traveling and preaching the gospel, and you have done nothing with it. I'm speaking to some women tonight that you were called as missionaries. 
and you have done nothing with it. I was speaking to some of you men that were called to stand and boldly declare the gospel and you have done nothing with it. And Jordan, what would you know of this? Friend, I worked a secular job for nine years of my life dreaming of gospel campaigns. But you better believe I nearly got myself fired so many times for preaching the gospel. That does not qualify you to preach the gospel. I started on the streets of my hometown in a place called Rotherham, England. I know you've never heard of it. Most people in England haven't heard of it. I started on the streets preaching to homeless people, broken people, 13 years old, just trying to lay hands on people in wheelchairs and nothing happened, but it was okay because Jesus told me to do it anyway. Friend, I got my start preaching. In fact, I preached my first sermon at seven years old, the day after I got saved. I got saved at seven. The next day, you want to hear my first sermon? I went to my school. I grabbed my best friend by the shirt. I said, you need to get saved. He said, why? I said, I don't know, but I got saved, so you need to get saved. That was my first altar call. That was my first altar call. Now, I have since changed the methodology a little bit. 10 years old, 11 years old, there was something in my church called the Silver Liners. It was a polite way of saying if you've got gray hair, it was a club for you. It was the old people's group in the church. Friend, I was 10, 11 years old and I was preaching to these 9 or 10 precious older people who gave the grace to a dysfunctional, squeaky-voiced 11-year-old who wasn't even preaching sound theology. But they were gracious enough to listen to me and at least made me feel like I had a calling. And now you just saw what the Lord is doing around the world. And as you can see, God has definitely not found an overly qualified individual. God's looking for a yes tonight. I would go as far as to say this. The call of God on your life is meaningless until you say yes. I don't care if Pastor Benny Hinn walked in here right now, laid hands on you and said, you're the next Billy Graham. Guess what? Nothing's happening until you say yes to it. Nothing. It will lay dormant like a book on a shelf until you say yes and pull it out and find where is my place in the scroll of God's work for my life. Where in the kingdom of God assigned me to work. See, friend, I'm wrapping up this message right now. I've gone way over the time. I told you, but that's okay. I've actually entitled this message, Don't Leave the Wall. Don't Leave the Wall. See, friend, there's a story in the Bible of a man called Nehemiah. And Nehemiah was the king's right-hand man. He was the assistant to the king. Now, you have to understand Without even knowing this, we already know this, it was clearly a well-paid position. Nehemiah was not struggling financially. I'm sure he had beautiful accommodation to live in with his family. I'm sure he dressed nice. I'm sure he smelled great. Probably wore like, I don't know, Versace or something like that. Who knows, okay? He probably smelled great. You ever meet these people who smell good and you're like, you're rich. You know those people? 
You ever done that? You ever been hugged by somebody like, you make a lot of money because you smell, you know, you can smell rich people. They just wear that expensive cologne. Where am I going with this, Zach? Okay, Nehemiah. <laughs> Some of you guys are going to hug me after, like, you don't smell rich, Jordan. You're wearing, like, $40 Zara cologne. Yeah, it smells good. I think I smell good. Nehemiah is working for the king, and one day he hears some saddening news. He hears that the holy city of Jerusalem has been burned to the ground. And something grips his heart about this. Now watch this carefully. Watch carefully. Nehemiah was so moved by this. He went to the king and said, King, I'm so thankful for all these years you've employed me. I'm grateful for everything you've done, but sure, I have a request. Would you mind if I took a demotion and became a builder rather than your cupbearer? Can you imagine the ludicrousy of this request? It is the equivalent of going from Jeff Bezos. I don't even know Jeff Bezos. He's the guy who owns Amazon, okay, the richest guy in the world. It's the equivalent of going from there to sweeping streets. And there's nothing wrong if you do that. What I'm saying is I'm trying to contrast the jump or the lack of jump that he took. But something in the heart of Nehemiah told him this. You can stay as the cupbearer for the rest of your life and you will build a temporary kingdom. Or you can humble yourself to get in the dirt, to get your hands messy, and you can build a kingdom that the Bible says will be eternal. How do I know that? Because he was building the walls of Jerusalem and you'll find in scripture, friend, that those walls are still there today. So much so that Jesus himself will walk through the east gate of those. Yeah. Yeah. Nehemiah knew this. I may be taking a demotion, but I am giving my life to something that will last longer than me. It will have something of eternal value. It is something that means eternity will be changed. I want you to imagine Nehemiah's down in the dirt building these bricks, and someone turns to him and says, Were you the cupbearer? Guys, guys, look. Look, it's Nehemiah. The fancy guy, the rich guy. Now look at him. He's in the dirt with us. Why am I telling you that? Because some of you need to lay down your cup bearing and choose to take a demotion and build bricks in the dirt that may not look glamorous. But those bricks are building a kingdom, friend, that will far outlast you. 
and will far outlast me. How am I saying this looks? Friend, you're not going to physically build bricks, but here's what it looks like. It looks like going low and finding the homeless man on the end of the street that no one wants to talk to, who doesn't smell too good, who's generally aggressive to people. And you go and you get on his level and you say, I don't know what you've been through, but I do know your life's not over. Your life is not done. There is still hope that God can save you. He can wash you. I'll get down in the dirt with you. I'll build a kingdom. Though it doesn't look glamorous, it is something that will last. But watch this. The Bible says one day, Nehemiah was up on the wall, building the walls. Please give me two moments of your time. Listen, I promise this will change some of your lives tonight. The Bible says Nehemiah is up on the wall. And he's building the city of Jerusalem. Working for something eternal. And the Bible says that some men from the city that he used to serve in came to the bottom of his ladder and said, Nehemiah, we need to talk to you. Come down that we may speak. Friend, listen carefully. I love the response of Nehemiah. Here's what he said. Someone come help me on the piano real quick. Just run as fast as anybody who, who was playing earlier. Just run up here if you can. Or anybody who's currently feeling a anointing to play the... <laughs> okay, wonderful. Listen, listen, listen. Nehemiah gave this response, and it is incredible. He said, I cannot come down from this wall, for I am doing a great work. Now, some of us would think that's foolish. And here's why. Well, Nehemiah, what if they were coming to you to triple your salary? Does anybody think this poses at least a reasonable request to think about? Nehemiah, what if they were coming to you to say the king is actually looking at retiring? He'd like you to take his position. But Nehemiah didn't as much as even look at them. Never mind, accept their offer. And my question to Nehemiah is, why? Why, Nehemiah? Why would you not even at least listen to their offer? What damage could it do? Can I suggest to you why I think he didn't even listen to them? Just begin to play if you can. Just begin to play softly. I think the reason was this. Nehemiah was convinced there is nothing you can offer me that is more important than what I am currently doing. Nothing. You can offer me money, but one day it will burn. You can offer me houses, but when I'm dead and gone, those houses will mean nothing. You can offer me promotion, 
But when I stand before God, He won't refer to me as CEO. Nehemiah became possessed with purpose. Jordan, what has this got to do with me tonight? Well, friend, I don't mean to stand in your toes, but, but I do mean to stand in your toes. There was a day that some of you were up on the wall. Some of you standing here tonight, there was a day you were on the wall. And you were building the kingdom of God. With every word you spoke, you were building the kingdom of God. With every act of love, you were building the kingdom of God. Every time you witnessed, you were building with your mouth. Every time you fed the homeless, you were building with your hands. You were up the wall, building the kingdom. But one day, something came to the bottom of your ladder. Hey, I want to speak to you. See, to you, it may have looked like a girlfriend. Not harmful. What damage could this do at least entertaining this conversation for five minutes? Yeah, but five minutes turned into an hour because you realized you liked her. An hour turned into a day, a week, a month. Then you're dating. Then you realize you want to get engaged to this girl. And suddenly you hear something in your spirit. Hey, I know you've got this going on, but you're meant to be on the wall building. And Lord, I will. But at least let me first get married to her. And Lord says, okay. So you get married to the girl, and then you hear this knock on your heart. Hey, come back to the wall. There's work that needs to be. Lord, 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 I know about the wall. It's him. I will. But at least let us first have our, our child. The Lord says, okay. So you have your first child. You're happy. But you hear this knocking. Hey, come back to the wall. There's work that needs to be done for the kid. Lord, I will. But at least let me get my child through college first. Then your child goes through college. And the Lord comes graciously again. Listen, come back to the wall. There's work you're meant to be doing. Lord, Lord, I, I will. But let me first get my dream job. I'm so close. Then you get your dream job. And the Lord comes again. Would you come back to the wall? Would you come back? There's a purpose on your life. Don't you see the time is being waited? Lord, Lord, I'm coming. 20 years go by. 30 years go by. 40 years, 50 years, 60, 70, 80. And the Lord comes knocking. Come back to the wall. Lord, I would. But Lord, can't you see I'm too old? You didn't realize what came to the bottom of your ladder that day. Took you away from the call of God. Now listen carefully. For that specific example, the right wife and the right husband will push you closer to that wall. But friend, if you're entertaining some little girlfriend because it seems like something good to do on the weekend, you are losing 
the fight to stay where God wanted. See, listen, 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 listen. No, no, no. Not just you. Hey, some of you who think that looks like a good business deal, it may in the natural, but what is it going to do to your church attendance? What is it going to mean that you can't make it to the Bible study anymore? What if it means you can't get your children? And let, let, let me kill this devil right now. For those of you, who think it's more important for your son or your daughter playing football on a Sunday morning rather than being in the house of God, you have failed to understand there is work at the wall. But my boy loves it. Friend, if your boy doesn't have a foundation in his spirit, it's either heaven or hell you'll have to deal with, not a football game. But maybe it's his calling. You don't think the Lord can get him where he needs to be? Without your little Sunday morning practice for little Timmy? Timmy don't need football. He's about to walk into a school full of heathens. He needs the Bible inside of him. He needs the Word. You know the amount of people who ask me already, are you concerned that the time you and your wife have had your son I have a one-year-old. He's our firstborn. People said, Jordan, it's not a great time, is it? Look at the world and what's happening. You think I'm worried about the Lord keeping my child. Do you not know that the only reason this world is still spinning right now is because the Lord has not told it to stop? And you think he can't look after your child? You're telling me the one who flung stars into space, the one who spoke and oceans were formed, who separated light from darkness, who himself is light, that angels worship him, the devil fears him, presidents bow before him. You're telling me you can't trust him? And I should be scared of what the world could do to my son. You don't know who I serve. You don't know the God I serve, friend. He's the one who splits oceans, shuts the mouths of lions, parts the fire, brings you out not smelling of smoke, parts the Red Sea view, brings down the walls of Jericho, kills giants for you, brings you out of the hands of the enemy. My friend, do you know in whom you have believed? If he was faithful to my grandfather, and he was faithful to my father, and he was faithful to me, then he's not about to stop it. Stand to your feet. Close your eyes very quickly if you're here tonight. Close your eyes very quickly. Friend, in a few moments, I'm going to open this altar. And this is a moment where you are going to have to be entirely vulnerable with the Lord. Some of you tonight are going to answer the call to declare this gospel. Some of you that for years you know it has been years since you led someone to Jesus. Friend, tonight that ends. Tonight that ends. I'm going to be vulnerable with you. One of the things in life that I have to have the Lord help me with the most 
is excuse me is individual evangelism. Do you know, friend, the last thing you feel like doing after you've flown 31 hours on a plane back from a crusade is talking to the guy next to you on the plane. But the gospel has nothing to do with how you feel. And let me get on your level real quick. Not that I ever was above your level at all. But I have repented more times than I can even imagine when I left an Uber driver and the Lord said, you didn't share the gospel. I said, oh God, I'm so sorry. The amount of times the target delivery guy brought groceries to your door and all it would have taken was, hey brother, I know this might not make sense to you, but Jesus loves you, man. He's got a plan for your life. You don't know what that could do. I want to share a quick testimony with you. I know I've gone over time. Do you forgive me? I'm sorry. Can I share just a testament to encourage you real quick? The other day, in fact, last night, I got back from Idaho at 1 a.m. I flew here at 6 a.m. But on the way to the airport, excuse me, it actually starts earlier than that. I went to the airport like 6 a.m. So I thought it might be insensitive to wake my wife up and my one-year-old and ask me to drive him to the airport. So I ordered an Uber to get me there. And when I came out of my front door, the Uber driver opened up his front door to open the trunk to let me put my suitcase in there. And as nice as I can possibly say this, he was not winning any awards for the most friendly man I've ever seen. This guy looked like a straight up killer, okay? I'm not stereotyping, but I kind of was at the same time, all right? I'm like, if I'm gonna die in an Uber, this is the one I would die in, okay? It turns out his story matched his look. We get in the car, and this guy just wasn't, wasn't a people person. But I guess in order to get a good review, because you have to review these guys when you get an Uber, he made light conversation, and, and light is definitely the word I would use. He's like, how are you doing? You know, that kind of thing. And so slowly, I think by a miracle from the Lord, because I wasn't making any progress, this guy starts talking. And he is just cursing up a storm. He is like, he is, he is using fruitful language. I mean, just colorful language. He was amazing to witness, actually. And he starts talking about all the evil going on in the world and he used definitely different language, but all the messed up stuff. And he talked about how he was in gangs in Brooklyn and was nearly killed and someone looked at him wrong, he'd smashed her face and I'm like, man, this is, this is precious. This is, you know, amen. And then he asked me this question. He said, what do you think about it all? I'm like, oh, you've asked the wrong guy. If you wanted a quiet ride to the airport, you asked the wrong guy. I thought, if I don't take this opportunity, no one ever call me an evangelist again. He said, what do you think about all the riots, the hate, the racism, just about it all? I said, I think I have an answer. Picture the scene. This guy's a straight up tattooed head to foot thug. Like, like the kind of guy you move over the street from if you're walking late at night. And I said, well, I think, here's what I think about it. 
I said, I think the Bible tells me God so loved the world. He gave his one and only son. That whoever would even just believe in him. You wouldn't die. You wouldn't be separated from God. But you'd have eternal life. I said, sir, I don't know what that means to you, but I know you've got hurt in your life and brokenness. I can see it. He proceeded to tell me about his family, how he hates his mother and father. They hate him. Hates family. And for about two minutes, I spoke on the love of Jesus. And then something happened that nearly made my eyeballs roll out of my skull. I was trying to think of what to say. It was still dark because it was early in the morning, so we couldn't even see each other properly. But I was talking about the love of Jesus, how he can mend the broken. You're tired, sir. You're weary from this fight in life. But Jesus said, come to me. Oh, you are weary and heavy laden. I'll give you rest. Rest for your soul. Rest for the hate that you're fighting with every day. And sir, if you died right now, you don't even know where you would go. And I heard this noise. Friend, I looked up. And this straight up killer has tears rolling down his cheeks. And at 6.29 on Wednesday morning, outside Orlando International Airport, this man gave his life to Jesus. I, I tell you all of that to tell you this. It's not difficult. Love people where they are. Friend, I never condemned him for hating his family. I didn't agree with it, but I didn't condemn him. Because I know what sin will do to you. The answer was not making him feel bad. The answer was Jesus. Once you talk about the love of God, you can then talk about the wrath of God. I said, sir, you're on a one-way track to hell. I told him that. I said, but today Jesus offers you forgiveness. But sir, you have to repent. So right there and then, in the car, he also forgave his family. The guy got out of the car, listen to this. Got out of the car, pulled out my suitcase out of the trunk, walked up, put his arms around me. And he said, I love you, man. I said, I love you too. This is what the gospel does. Friend, we owe the gospel to this world. So without any buildup, without me getting you hyped, if today you say, Jordan, I need to answer the call to the gospel, as fast as you can, get out of your seat, come and kneel at this altar. If that's you, friend, if you say, Jordan, I don't preach the gospel. Now here's where you need to take off your little church performance hat like you got it all together. If you can't remember the last time you led someone to Jesus, friend, today you need to do something about that. If you say, Jordan, I don't preach the gospel, but I want God to do something in me that I am burdened for souls. I'm burdened for my family, my next door neighbor. Get out of your seat, friend. Come and kneel at the altar as fast as you can. As fast as you can, if that's you. If that's you, come as fast as you can. Come on, come on. 
I know some of you are waiting for your friend to come so you don't feel bad on your own. It's not about your reputation right now. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. Come on. Come on. Come on. Come on. Come on. Let's go. Let's go. If you haven't led somebody to Jesus in the last six months, that is a problem. Come on, friend. Souls are perishing. We are answerable for it. Let's go. Let's go. Tonight, Jesus can change your life forever. Come on, friend. Come on. Listen, I don't always feel comfortable doing it either. But it's not about how I feel. It's the burden that souls are going to hell. And you have the answer. Come as far forward as you can. Guys, make room. Come, everyone move as far forward as you can. If you're at this altar, get as close to this altar as you can. Get as close to this stage as you can. Friend, come on, I'm still waiting for you. If you know you need to be here. If you know you need to be here, I want you to come. I want you to come. You don't even realize how many of these altar calls I've been to. And I do this thing for a living. Man, every day I want to be a better evangelist. The lady at Starbucks should not hand me that coffee without hearing the gospel. That's where he's got to get to. Where you literally are so burdened, you leave Starbucks. The Lord says you should have spoke the gospel. You go back through that 15 minute drive through just so you can tell her about Jesus. That's where we should be at. That's where we should be at. I want to give you a story to make you feel better as well about the times it doesn't go well. How many know what Epcot is? Lift your hand if you know what Epcot is. All right, I live 10 minutes from Disney, okay? Epcot's one of the parks there. This is just to make you feel good about the times it's gone wrong, to let you know it's not about the outcome, it's about obedience. My wife and I, we were at Epcot and the park was closing, it was 10 o'clock at night. Everyone was being ushered out of the doors. This is hilarious. This will make you feel real good about the crusade you just saw, how I'm might, like majorly dysfunctional sometimes, okay? We're heading out and I see, <laughs> It's funny to me because I'm the one who did this, right? I see this guy and I see this woman. And the guy's got a blind stick, a walking stick, right? I don't know what you call them, a yeah, walking cane. So I'm like, I'm going to go pray for him. And God's going to heal him. And people are going to see around him. They're going to get excited. All of Epcot is going to fall on their knees and, say, knees and say, how do we receive Jesus? That's how I pictured it. Okay? It didn't go like that. I walked up to the lady and said, excuse me, um, can I pray for your father? She said, that's not my father, that's my husband. Rule 101, when evangelizing, if you don't have to use specifics, don't use specifics. If there was ever a way not to get someone healed and saved, this was it, okay? So I'm like, oh Jesus, this is going off to a terrible... I said, oh, I'm so sorry. I said, can I pray for your husband? She said, what for? I said, well, if you haven't noticed, he appears to be blind. I said, I believe Jesus can heal him. 
She said, if you have to, go ahead. So I said, sir, can I pray for you? He didn't even respond to me. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to do it anyway. At this moment, people had started to gather. So I'm like, oh, dear Jesus. <laughs> so I lay my hand on this guy's eyes. And I said, in the name of Jesus, blind eyes open. Now, I was so scared what would happen, I didn't take my hand off. Because I was scared that they wouldn't open. So I prayed everything I could. I spoke to the retina. I spoke to the pupil. I spoke to the cornea. I spoke to the iris. I spoke to the blood vessels. There's anything I could think of back in biology class that I could remember, I named it all. It was all getting healed that night. I took my hands off the man's eyes and I said, what do you see? He said, I don't see anything. I'm like, oh dear Jesus. So I prayed for him again. Nothing happened. Pray for him one last time. In the name of Jesus, be healed. And nothing happened. So I said, well, at least I was obedient, Lord. And I was about to walk away and I felt the Holy Spirit say, and you're not even going to share the gospel with him? I'm like, well, Lord, if you haven't noticed, nothing has gone well up until this point. I'm like, hey, you know I just told you that God would heal you and he hasn't. Can I still tell you more about him? So I said, sir, can I just tell you for two minutes about the gospel? And so I shared the gospel with this man. And I said, would you like to receive this Jesus into your heart? And at the same time, both the man and the woman said, yes, we want to give our lives to this Jesus. They came from a Muslim family. Right there and then in the middle of Epcot with people surrounding me and watching me, I led them both to the Lord. My wife took their contact details. We mailed them a Bible. And I don't know where they are today. But what I do know is this. I was obedient in that moment. I look stupid, beyond stupid with all those people watching, but it's not about how I look. God does not really care much about your reputation. What if I look stupid? He doesn't really mind. Obedience. Obedience.